Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's bow our heads together as we ask the Lord to guide our thinking this morning. Father, we're so thankful for all that you have given us in your word as you have told us who you are and who we are, that in your word you uh, direct us in terms of the foundational uh, principles and framework that we should have in order to think about the details of life. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Kings, studying the uh, ways in which uh, you worked in the Old Testament, especially in and through Uh, the nation of Israel, specifically now with the southern kingdom of Judah. We pray that we may understand what these principles are that are uh, illustrated within the text, that we may apply those in our own thinking as we evaluate the circumstances uh, that surround us in our own time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21, and you might also stick a piece of paper or bulletin or something into 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 23, 2 Chronicles uh, 33 rather, 2 Chronicles 33 and 2 Kings 21. In post-enlightenment, Western civilization, our culture, and by that I don't mean a, the Christian aspect of the culture, but the rationalistic uh, aspect of our culture that comes out of the Enlightenment, uh, focuses on the natural as the only realm of, of, of human knowledge and human perception. That everything within the natural realm, everything within what... what um, uh, Immanuel Kant described as the, as the uh, phenomenal, what we see, what we perceive, uh, that is reality. And nothing beyond that in terms of modern thought, nothing beyond that is as real or actually exists as that which we can measure, that which we can quantify, that which we can observe. Rationalism in this sense in the sense of a, of a philosophy of life, a worldview that is built upon that which is directly observable uh, through the human senses in terms of empiricism, uh, 
and that which is deducted from that in terms of the autonomous use of human reason, only that is what makes up reality. And so when we go to university, you go to uh, various other workshops, you read uh, histories and biographies from a secular viewpoint, what they emphasize, if they emphasize anything in relation to causation or why things happen the way they do, they exclude completely the spiritual realm so that these analyses are all based upon uh, various models of, uh, of, of behavior, whether it's economic behavior, whether it's social behavior, uh, whether it's political behavior, uh, whether it's military action. The, these models are somewhat limited because from the very outset, presuppositionally, the, the writers, the, the scholars come to the data excluding God and excluding the impact of spiritual reality from having any genuine causative influence on the trends of history. Not only is God excluded, but we also see that in this that the existence of angels, demons, or Satan himself as the arch enemy of God, the devil who led a rebellion among the angels against God in eternity past, that the existence and activities of angels and demons have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, everyday events. They have nothing to do with the movements of history. They have nothing to do with, with, the, with wars, with the rise of uh, human powers and authorities, uh, with the trends of politics, that somehow all of that gets excluded because in a secularist mindset, the only thing that has real meaning, uh, quantifiable, measurable value is that which is observable, that which is which is measurable, and anything else is just, well, that's just subjectivity. So ever since Immanuel Kant, who was a uh, famous uh, German philosopher at the end of the 18th century, ever since Kant, uh, Western civilization redefined how we know truth, and we don't know truth objectively. We only know it subjectively. We only know our own impressions of what happened. And so religion, uh, as a result of Kantian influence on thought, religion began... Uh, to be thought of not as something that expresses an external objective reality, a God who rules in the affairs of men, a God who is, uh, uh, and, and that human history is part of an overall uh, invisible war or invisible conflict uh, among the angels. Uh, that was all rejected so that uh, God, angels, and demons are just subjective, psychological, or emotional facets of our makeup and things that we use to try to, in some sort of uh, superstitious manner, use to explain things. But that's not how the Bible presents God or the existence of angels or demons. In fact, as we have studied so many times, what the Bible presents, first of all, is that there are basically only two ways to look at life. There's God's way, and there is for lack of another term, there's Satan's way. Now, Satan's way sometimes we talk about in terms of human viewpoint. We talk about it in biblical terms, in terms of worldliness. Uh, but there are only these two views. God's view is that which is embedded within his omniscience, his righteousness, 
and his justice, which provide the ethical element to his knowledge, and that God's omniscience is that area of, of knowledge where God knows all of the knowable. His, his knowledge is eternal. It's immutable. It never changes. He doesn't add knowledge. He doesn't decrease in knowledge. He knows all things. He has always known all things. And he didn't learn things. He knew everything throughout all of eternity immediately, intuitively, and comprehensively. And we can't even come close to comprehending what that actually means. But that God doesn't learn anything. He doesn't acquire knowledge. He has an absolute knowledge of all things. And his knowledge, because it is consistent with his righteousness and his justice, is, uh, is that which sets the absolute standard, ethical standard, for all of history. Now, when the creature Lucifer, the highest of all of the angels, and um, who rebelled against him in eternity past, as indicated in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, in the Hebrew, his name is Hillel ben Shahar, which... Uh, literally means the uh, son of the dawn. Uh, it doesn't really mean Lucifer. That was just the way the Latin Vulgate had translated it, and then it came over into the English. But because that has become the traditional name uh, for this creature, we still refer to him as, as Lucifer. When he led his rebellion against God, what he did in essence was he said, I have a better idea. I have a better way of thinking about everything. So he's juxtaposing his way of thinking against God's way of thinking. And so we basically have these two ways of thinking. Now, God's way of thinking is more monolithic, whereas within Satan's way of thinking, because of the nature of creaturely arrogance, it basically fragments into uh, an myriad of options and alternatives so that it is not monolithic and Satan's way of thinking also is has a level of self-justification that provides its own ethic its own standard its own right and wrong now as we studied in the past we see that there are two characteristics of Satan's thinking and everything else falls out from these two Elements. One is arrogance, the, the self-promotion of the creature, that the creature can do it as well as God, that the creature can define reality and define the elements of thought as well as the creator can, that in fact the creature can, can somehow innovate in the area of ethics and in the area of knowledge and generate a view of reality that can compete with God's view of reality. Now, we know just thinking about that, that, that's absurd, but that's exactly what we all do every day when we start operating on arrogance. We think that our view of reality uh, can uh, take over and replace God's view of reality. And we know objectively that that is uh, just nonsense, but nevertheless, in arrogance, we are blinded, we are self-deceived. And so we do not uh, see the error of that as we do when we stop and we think about it more objectively. So the first element is arrogance. The second element is antagonism towards God. 
that when the creature starts to operate autonomously or independently from God, that immediately a conflict results, and because of that conflict, the creature in arrogance becomes hostile or antagonistic to God. And so when you look at these two characteristics of arrogance and uh, and antagonism, which are the two uh, two primary poles of all satanic thought, then we see the essence of all of the world's religions other than Christianity and all of the world's philosophies because they all operate on this assumption that man can define reality without paying attention to what God has said and that man can define right and wrong on his own terms apart from what God has said and that God, man can therefore live his life in terms of this alternate universe that he's created between his, uh, between his ears. Now, because Satan's way of thinking is built on this creaturely rebellion, this assertion of independence from God, then all of the world's religions and philosophies, whether you're talking about Buddhism, Hinduism, whether you're talking about Mormonism or Islam, what are any of the world, world religions that are based upon human works, they all fall out in terms of what the Scripture describes as, quote, worldliness, the way the world thinks mirrors and reflects the father of the world which in worldly thinking, which is Satan. So that when we are not operating, when we're not living on the basis of the word of God, then you're operating in some realm, in some ways, within the thinking of Satan. So that's why I say that there's only two ways to think about things. It's either God's way or Satan's way. And man in the fall with Adam and Eve as they rebelled against God are basically mirroring or reflecting the thinking of Satan in his fall. It's just a, it's just chapter, uh, I mean, just the second verse of the same, of the same hymn, the same song. And so, as you see this breakdown, we realize that human history is not operating in a pure physical material reality. But there is an immaterial reality, an invisible reality related to the angels and the angelic rebellion against God that has a direct impact on human history. And when we think independently of God, we're thinking in the same way that Satan thinks. That's why I call that call it satanic thought. Now, a lot of people may think, well, that just seems a little too harsh. I don't seem to be satanic at all. And now we get into some areas where we have to define terms like what exactly is good and evil. If I were to ask most of you to write down a definition of evil, you would come up with a uh, definition of evil similar to that which is found in the uh, concise Oxford uh, English Dictionary that evil is defined as that which is extremely wicked and immoral, that it embodies, I, I thought this was a very uh, important aspect of that definition in the Oxford English Dictionary, that one aspect of the definition defines it as that which, is, which is embodies or is associated with the forces of the devil. That is the real, def, that is a biblical definition of what evil is. It, evil is not that necessarily that which we think of as extreme violence or 
uh, implacability or hatred or uh, abuse or any of the social ills or social things that are defined uh, in each generation as social injustice. Those are, that's not what the Bible thinks of when it defines evil. When we look through the, or think back through what we studied in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, going all the way back to uh, Solomon and Solomon's, uh, when Solomon got involved with idolatry, later as the uh, nation of Israel, the United Kingdom was punished by God, disciplined by God, and there was the rebellion from uh, the ten tribes in the north under Jeroboam the first and the two tribes in the south, that Jeroboam set up an alternate, a competing worship center in the north, actually two, one in Bethel and one further north in Dan. He set up a competing deity. He created a golden calf or golden calves to place in each of these sites, and he identified these golden calves as the god who had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God said this was what was evil. Now, he's, God defines, therefore, this religion as evil. Why? Because it, they practiced violent things, because, because later on that they uh, were involved in uh, human sacrifice? Does God define it as evil because it promoted gross immorality? Well, not necessarily at that time. They were still moral people under Jeroboam. The evil is, the act is defined as evil because it's an act of treason against God. Evil is evil because it is a rejection of the existence and the reality of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Evil is evil biblically because it substitutes the worship of something in the creation for the worship of God. And at the very center of all thought is either going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, or it's going to be something else. It's going to be something material in terms of materialism. It's going to be some other false deity. It's going to be prosperity or a prosperity God or fertility God as you had in the ancient world. But once at the very center of thought it shifts from the true God to some other deity, then everything else, as you move out in your thinking from the existence of God and you think about ethics, you think about law, you think about politics, you think about behavior, you think about ethics, all these things, as you move out from that center, everything else changes. Now, these are heavy thoughts for a Sunday morning. But the reason I'm emphasizing all this by way of introduction is to help us understand the nature of evil and its impact under Manasseh. Now, there have been these trends of evil in the history of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom for the previous, for the previous 200 plus years, 230, 240 years, depending on where your benchmark is, back to the time of Solomon, uh, Solomon's defection uh, from God and his orientation to idolatry. And so there have been these trends. There was Solomon's idolatry. That was followed when the nation divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and you had in the northern kingdom the worship of the two golden calves under Jeroboam I. And if you remember, as we went through uh, the history of the northern kingdom from one king to the next, the comment that God makes is, is what? That so-and-so did evil uh, as 
Jeroboam the first and followed in the path of Jeroboam the first, so that he becomes the benchmark of evil until when? Until we get down to the descendants of Omri and with Ahab, and Ahab marries Jezebel, the daughter of the uh, king and high priest in Phoenicia, Itobaal, and she brings the whole worship of Baalism and uh, the worship of the Asherah into the northern kingdom. And this just takes, it moves from the religious observance of, uh, that was sort of half, uh, half true, as it were. You know, they, the northern kingdom had absorbed or kept part of the traditions of the law, so it had a form of righteousness and a form of morality and a form of uh, obedience to God, even though it was distorted. When you get into the worship of Baal, it became extremely perverse, and you have the, also the introduction of child sacrifice and, the, uh, and human sacrifice and, and the uh, extreme sexual perversion that went on in the worship of the gods and goddesses to encourage them to make the individual worshiper uh, more uh, fertile or prosperous, as it were. And so this horror of the fertility religions gets introduced into the thinking of the northern kingdom through uh, Jezebel and Ahab, and then it gets introduced via their daughter, Athaliah, into the southern kingdom uh, when she marries into the dynasty of David into the southern kingdom. Now, this created a major problem in the northern kingdom. Eventually, it's the reason that they are disciplined by God and defeated by the Assyrian Empire and removed from history in 722 uh, B.C. And in the southern kingdom, there was this ebb and flow of this influence of, of Ahab and the worship of the Baals and the Asherah, and we saw that in, in Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. And Hezekiah cleans house. He comes in and he removes all of the high places. He destroys all of the idols. He, uh, he clean, cleanses the temple. And he returns the nation back to an observance of God and the Torah. But it is instituted from the top down. It is Hezekiah who has truly turned to God. It is not the heart of the people that turn to God. And so even though they were delivered by God with the miraculous destruction of the army of Sennacherib outside of Jerusalem and God blessed the nation under Hezekiah, the hearts of the people were not truly with God. And so when Hezekiah died, he is succeeded on the throne by his son Manasseh. And Manasseh rejects everything that his father stood for, and he is in such rejection of the authority of his father that he takes the nation back into the paganism of his grandfather Ahaz, and then he intensifies it and makes it even worse so that he becomes the most evil king in the history of the northern uh, kingdom. Now, we're, we're given a divine summary of Manasseh's reign in the first verse of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And so this locates him within the flow of history, identifies him specifically. He begins to reign when he's 12 years old. Now, in order to make the chronology fit, most modern scholars uh, suggest that he was a co-regent. 
Uh, although the Bible never specifically talks about co-regency and that it, in itself uh, has become something that is uh, somewhat controversial and there's a lot of discussion and debate in the, in the, among those who reconstruct the chronology of the uh, ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Uh, it seems to fit because if you take this uh, these dates specifically, literally, then, and, and Manasseh reigned for 55 years, then he gets too close to the, to the uh, d- destruction of the southern kingdom in uh, 586, and the, the chronology really doesn't work. So uh, we'll just leave all of those chronological issues uh, for another time. But he's 12 years old when he became king. We know that. That's certain. He reigns for 55 years. Now think back to what was 55 years ago. That takes us back to 1955. Some of you weren't even alive then. Some of you were uh, just in your teenage years. A few of you might have been a little older, but 55 years is a long time. Going back to 1965, a lot has happened, and a lot happened during the reign of Manasseh. It didn't all happen. The change, the deterioration didn't happen overnight. And at the end of his reign, we see something remarkable take place because he turns back to God. And there is a spiritual recovery to a small degree, which just emphasizes the grace of God. So the first verse just gives us the divine summary of Manasseh's reign. And then the next uh, seven verses give us an evaluation of Manasseh's life. In verse 2 we read, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we've already understood what evil is. Evil means idolatry. Evil means a rejection of the first of the Ten Commandments. That he has rejected God as the only God, and he has removing God physically as much as he can from any presence in the life of the southern kingdom. And he's going to do this by obliterating as much as he can anything that represents God or the Torah. When we get into his son, Josiah, who will bring about a tremendous return to the Torah and to the truth, uh, we will see that by the time Josiah becomes an adolescent, there's no one in the southern kingdom of Judah who even knows or has Uh, 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 has the Torah available to them. They've lost it completely because of these horrible, evil things that Manasseh did. So he did evil in the sight of the God, which doesn't mean he was a horrible man. It doesn't mean that he, uh, it doesn't emphasize the uh, violence and the murders and the executions that he did enact later on in his reign. As we see this word in the Old Testament simply means he is a traitor to God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations. Now, the abominations of the nations specifically take us to idolatry, and we'll see that in just a minute. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, that focuses us on the Gentile nations, the Canaanites, who had inhabited the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God allowed them to live to, the, to, the, to work out the end results of their, their, their uh, uh, religious uh, idolatry to the point that, they, that the culture, their culture was so wicked 
and so horrible that God had to bring it to an end and wanted them annihilated from the face of the earth. Now, the interesting word that we have in this uh, chapter is the word uh, is the word for abominations. That is the uh, Hebrew word ta'eva. And this is translated abomination, which according to the uh, concise Oxford English Dictionary means a cause of hatred or disgust. And it's also translated in some versions detestable. Now, something that is detestable is that which is, deserve, that which is deserving of intense dislike. Now, both of these words are actually what is called uh, anthropopathisms. Uh, anthropopathism is a figure of speech in which human emotions, which God does not actually possess, are attributed to him for the purpose of communicating by way of analogy some aspect of his purpose, plans, or character. In this case, this idea representing the uh, hatred or disgust or uh, intense dislike represents the complete rejection by God of something. He completely rejects their opinions, their beliefs, their ideas, their values uh, without any acceptance whatsoever. It emphasizes his righteousness, uh, tzaddik, the Hebrew word for righteousness. It emphasizes his righteous standard and that what they are doing, because it is built on a rejection of him, what they are doing is uh, completely incompatible uh, with his character. But the word that is used here also takes us back to understand the historical context and how this relates to God's absolutes as laid down in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy, Moses gives his last major address, his last major sermon to the, uh, to the Israelites before he goes uh, to be with the Lord and before they enter into the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, uh, 18, he lays out uh, a warning that God gives the nation before they go into the land. He says in verse 9, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Well, what's, what is uh, Manasseh doing? He is learning to follow the abomination of those nations. In verse 10, uh, Moses goes on to say, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Well, Manasseh is going to restore that. Now, what this refers to is the worship of, of Moloch or Chemosh. These are two different names for the same deity, where they built these huge idols of Chemosh or, or Molech, and his arms are outstretched, and within this area between his arms there is a, a furnace that is built, and the fires are lit there, and then the individual who is worshiping Chemosh or, or Moloch would bring an infant, bring their child, and would put him on the arms of Moloch, which means he would be immediately immolated uh, by the fires of Moloch, and it is a living human sacrifice. Now, that's hard for us to imagine, but this had become the norm in the northern kingdom of Israel from the time of Ahab, and it is being restored to the practice uh, to practice in the southern kingdom. And this was warned against by God through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or any who, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. Now I'll come back and look at those words in a minute. But that what that refers to is those who are involved in demonism, those who are involved in trying to contact the quote supernatural. Uh, today, uh, you have the same kinds of people today who are channeling spirits or who are involved in other forms of uh, what we now call the New Age movement, which isn't that new. It's just the old lie. It goes all the way back to this time. Those who are involved in demonism, because what this does is it introduces in a much more active sense demonic thought and demonic ideas into the culture. Uh, verse 11 goes on to say, one who conjures spells or medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. That is, those who are trying to get in touch with the dead. That's just another way of talking about uh, what we refer to as spirit, spiritism. This is all prohibited by the word of God because whenever you're engaged in this kind of activity from fortune telling, astrology or whatever, it opens you up to direct demonic uh, influence at a more active level than you've ever experienced before. There's a difference between demonic influence and demon possession. Demon possession is when a an evil spirit or demon uh, takes up residence or controls a person internally, controls their physical bodily actions, uh, may control other aspects of their being, what they say, what they do, may co- bring illness upon them. We've seen numerous examples of this in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is demon possession, in the, but it doesn't obliterate the personality or the volition of the individual. And the only solution is for that person who's still present, who's still there, to make a decision to reject demonism and to turn to God. That's the only thing that can bring about uh, the uh, a true uh, casting out of the demon. It's not based on spells or exorcism or any of the other kind of mumbo-jumbo that you see in uh, some of the world's religions and some aspects of Christianity. Deuteronomy 18.12 goes on to say, using the same word for abomination again, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Not only is the act an abomination, but those who do it are detestable to God. Those who do it are an abomination to God. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. That is, it drove out the Canaanites. And there is a warning in the next couple of verses. In verse 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. In context, that means not being involved in these demonic activities. Verse 14, For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And the warning in the Scripture is simply that if Israel got involved in these activities, then God would then discipline them by removing them from the land. Now, these activities that are mentioned here, I have listed on this slide. Uh, the diff- di- these are four different Hebrew words that are used in the context of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, as well as in our passage in 2 Kings 21 and also in 2 Chronicles 33. The, and these words are very close synonyms. And so that if you look at the translations, often they, they, they reverse the translations. For example, 
The first word is anon that occurs in the poel stem in the Hebrew. This is translated soothsayer by the New King James and witchcraft in the New American Standard. Uh, But it refers to someone who foretells the future. Then the second word, nachash, is the word uh, witchcraft, which... uh, I misspelling on the abbreviation there. It's translated witchcraft in the New King James Version and divination in the New American Standard. So it's, they, they tend to overlap. Kashaf, which is translated sorcery, and sorcery is also used in some translations to translate Anan, is someone believed to have magical power. So these words, uh, were, they're, they're not used that much in Hebrew. They all refer to various kinds of... Um, of activities that are very closely connected, trying to foretell the future through contact with uh, supernatural beings. And then the last one is a term of, which is translated uh, mediums. The Greek translation was uh, in gastra muthos, which had to do with uh, the gastra is gastric, which is where we get our uh, term for, for the bowels, and muthos is related to uh, the opening of the mouth. And so it has to do with the casting of a voice like a ventriloquist. Now, what would happen in the ancient world is that you would go to a medium, and this medium would contact the dead, and the dead would not physically appear, but their, it, would, it would be as if their voice was coming forth from the ground, from the grave. And so the demon that possessed the medium would be casting their voice like a ventriloquist to uh, spot on the ground, and then it would sound as if that uh, place on the ground was uh, speaking this voice from the from the dead. That's why in the episode when Saul went to the witch of Endor and wants the witch of Endor to contact uh, 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 Samuel, that instead of a voice coming from the ground, Samuel actually actually appeared. It just it just shocked the the uh, the witch of Endor uh, shocked her as a mean because she had never had this happen before, and that's why she immediately knew that something. A bizarre and unusual was happening, and she immediately identified Saul, who had been in disguise as Saul, and she realized that God was at work and she was in trouble. Now, the reason this is brought in is because we do live in a universe that has this two-tiered reality, the reality of the material and the physical, and the reality of the immaterial and the angelic or demonic and that that realm operates at times in a causative way on the affairs of mankind. Not that it is a way that overrides human volition, but that when human volition in various cultures are open to the demonic because of their religious philosophies, uh, then you have more of a direct active demonic influence in the culture. And this happens in false religions. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, Moses spoke about this worship of these Canaanite idols and these false gods and the sacrifice to them. And he says, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. That when they were sacrificing to Moloch, to Chemosh, to Baal, to Asherah, to all these other gods... They're actually sacrificing to demons because it is demonic thought and demonic, direct demonic influence that lies behind these false religions. What that tells us is what I started 
emphasizing at the beginning of the uh, of the hour is that that we don't live in a world that is not uh, dis- not separated from the influence of Satan and the demons. That there is this constant influence going on from the demonic realm, and so that when we are not thinking biblically, we are thinking satanically. You may not like to think of it that way. I'm saying that in its harshest form, but it is true. All human viewpoint think, all of our opinions that disagree with the Bible are not just human viewpoint. It is a satanic viewpoint. And that is going to culminate uh, in both things that are very moral and ethical, what appear to be very moral and ethical. Second Corinthians uh, 11, Paul talks about the fact that Satan and his ministers appear as angels of light. That means they appear to be very good. There are many ideas, many values that appear so good and so wonderful and so, so uh, great for mankind, but their origin is not from the Bible. They, in fact, conflict with biblical ideas and biblical values, and they will lead to destruction. And so this is what we have here in uh, described in Manasseh's reign. Verse, uh, let me see. He, I just want to summarize all of the evil things that he did. First of all, he rebuilt the high places Hezekiah had destroyed. So he's going to reintroduce all of the false religion. Second, he follows in the footsteps of Ahab and Jezebel. Not Jeroboam isn't mentioned here. He's worse than the other kings that followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. He follows in the footsteps of Ahab and Jezebel and erects altars to Baal and the Asherah. Third, along with this, he worships the stars and the false gods associated with them. This is indicated by the phrase, the hosts of heaven. The phrase hosts of heaven, host is an... uh, Archaic word that refers to the armies of heaven, and this is a term that is used in the scripture to refer to the angelic host, whether it's the fallen angels or whether it is the holy angels. Fourth, he built altars to the false gods in the temple to the Lord. He goes into the temple of Solomon and removes the furniture and everything there that represents the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and replaces it with with idols to the Asherah and idols to these uh, false gods. Uh, in verse 5 we read, And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. But he goes beyond this to even worse be- behavior. He also, verse 6, he made his son pass through the fire. So he is worshiping Moloch and, um, uh, and or Chemosh. He practices witchcraft. It says, verse 6, he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Conclusion, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him, that is, God, to anger. So he's going to bring about God's judgment. Then in verse uh, uh, 7, he goes on to say, but he even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Now, the second part of verse 7 and the rest of verse 8 are all, all emphasize 
what God promised to Solomon when Solomon dedicated uh, dedicated the temple uh, dedicated the temple to God. And this comes out of 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6 and following. I think I have a slide for that. No, I don't. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. There, after Solomon had prayed to God at the dedication of the temple, he said, God answered his prayer and said, But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, so that means a destruction of the temple. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? For an example, uh, for example today, if we go to Israel and you go to the Temple Mount and there's no temple there, the question should be, why isn't there a temple there? Because it was destroyed in A.D. 70. Well, why did God destroy it? God destroyed it in A.D. 70 for the same reason he destroyed it in 586 B.C., because of the arrogance of the nation, because they rejected him, and specifically because Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so this is a teaching point. Then in 1 Kings 9, 9, uh, we see that they will answer. The answer to that question is because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. So, back to Second Kings chapter uh, 21, 1 through 9 all deals with Manasseh. And then we get the d- divine instruction to the nation. Verse 10, the Lord spoke by his servants the prophets. Now, up to this point, who's he been speaking by? Isaiah. What's happened to Isaiah? Well, we don't have anything in the Scripture that specifically states it. Hebrews chapter 11 states that Isaiah was uh, sawn in two, and it is believed that it was in the early stages of Manasseh's reign when Manasseh is rounding up all of those who disagree with him and all of the prophets of God, he's, he's killing them, and he had someone saw Isaiah in half. And so he was, Isaiah was martyred in the early years of Manasseh's, uh, Manasseh's reign. Verse 11, because Manasseh, God says, because Manasseh king of Judah has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all of the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Now that makes it look as if he's the one who is the responsible agent, but he's not. If you read Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 5, you see the indictment of the people because they are the ones who chose to go after the idols as well. So they received a leader uh, that they deserved. They did not truly follow with their heart the reforms of Hezekiah, but when, so when Manasseh took them back into idolatry, they willingly uh, followed him. So in verse 12, God says, Therefore... 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. This is the prophecy of the certain coming destruction when the southern kingdom would be destroyed by Babylon in 586, the temple would be destroyed, and Jerusalem would uh, basically be destroyed by the armies of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, And I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. This is just figurative speech that God has measured or evaluated the southern kingdom of Judah and they have come up short. They have failed in terms of being obedient. They are measured according to the standard of Ahab, and that means God is going to bring judgment upon them. And this is expressed in the very vivid imagery when God says, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Complete destruction. Wiping it and turning it upside down. He will empty out Jerusalem. Verse 14, so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. Now here is God speaking, God saying that the way I'm going to punish the nation is I'm going to remove them from their land and they will become slaves to their conquerors, which is exactly what happened. Why? Because they've done evil in my sight. The ultimate causation was spiritual. The ultimate reason was because they had rejected God and they had disobeyed him. It's not because they had a wrong political philosophy. It's not because they had a problem with uh, uh, immigrants that came into the land. They didn't follow the law on that or other things. It was ultimately the, the reason they failed in other areas of the law was because they had rejected God at the very core and they were worshiping some other deity. That is the core of evil. Because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Now, goes on to give us a little more information on, on Manasseh in verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. So he basically institutes a persecution against anyone who does not fall in line with his religious beliefs, and there is a bloody slaughter of prophets and priests and anyone who is part of the remnant. And so the remnant is reduced to almost nothing by the end of Manasseh's reign. Till he filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin. So the sin by which he made him sin is the evil, and a consequence of that is all of the violence that is subsequent to that. But there's something that is left out of Second Kings. And if you turn over to Second Chronicles, it is revealed to us uh, in Second Chronicles chapter thirty three, beginning in verse beginning in verse ten. God brings Manasseh under personal divine discipline. It's, it's amazing. Some people will only turn to God when God puts them under incredible pressure. Now, there are many people who even under the most adverse circumstances will never turn to God because it's not just a matter of circumstances. It's a matter of volition. But in verse 11, we're told that God personally brought discipline on, on Manasseh by bringing the army of Assyria... back to the southern kingdom of Judah for some infraction of Manasseh's that we're not told about. He did something that 
uh, angered Ashurbanipal, who is now the ruler of Assyria. Uh, and the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, that means the, the, the insertion of leather uh, bands into his nose, uh, who took Manasseh with hooks and uh, also bound him in his arms and put these leather straps around his arms. That's the idea of the hooks there. Bound him with bronze fetters. That's the the bronze, uh, like handcuffs on his arms, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, because he's now under extreme torture and dis, uh, and suffering in prison in Babylon, still the Assyrian Empire. Josephus got confused on this. Babylon was part of the Assyrian Empire. This time, there's a lot of turmoil in Nineveh, the capital. And so he is taken to Babylon. Now, when he was in infliction, finally he turns to God. He implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. It's a genuine conversion, turning to God. He turns to the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and God received his entreaty, his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is a point of Manasseh's conversion. So what does he do? He's going to reverse what he did at the beginning. He, uh, he is going to reestablish the worship of Yahweh, and he's going to outlaw the worship of the idols, and he is going to then reinforce the military fortifications of the nation. And he does all of this, but verse 17, nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places uh, not only to the Lord, their God. So there's still the syncretism in their religion. And then we're told in verse 18, now the rest of the acts of, of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel, also his prayer and how God received his entreaty, all of his sin and trespass, the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images, uh, all of this is written in the sayings of Hosea. So all of this is recorded for us, and we see the grace of God at the very end of, he- of um, Manasseh's life, despite all of the evil that he did. We can't, I don't think we can find anyone in the Scripture, perhaps, who is more evil in terms of his relationship to God than Manasseh, who commits more violence, who commits more murders in the name of religion, who, is, uh, who does more horrible things in terms of his own family, uh, uh, child sacrifice, than this particular individual. And yet God's grace is so great that when Manasseh humbled himself and turned to God and trusted in him, he is given salvation. Because salvation is a free gift that is given to us not because of who we are or what we've done, but it is given to us on the basis of God's character and God's grace and the fact that Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin. And so in the Old Testament, even though that sin penalty had not yet been paid, when the individual humbled themselves under the authority of God and turned to God as the source of their salvation, that is when they are saved in terms of the way we uh, normally talk about these things. And so Manasseh is a great example that we have in the Scripture that salvation is not based on works. It's not based on observance of the Torah. It's not based on any human action or any level of human morality. 
It is based on turning to God and expecting God to be the one who will who provides salvation. Now, with the New Testament and the fulfillment of those prophecies, we know that that comes through Jesus Christ. So that Acts says in Acts four twelve, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ because he is the one who paid the penalty for sin on the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for, again, that we have this opportunity to study your word because it is in your word that we learn of your grace. That in spite of all of the evil that Manasseh perpetuated in, in, uh, Israel, in Judah in the ancient world, despite the, his rebellion against you, and where that led in terms of all of the horrific uh, violence and executions and torturing that occurred as a result of his religious perversion and how he led the nation into its worst perversity uh, of all history. Nevertheless, when he humbled himself to you, you graciously gave him salvation and you graciously delivered him from his prison. In the same way, Father, no matter what we have done, your grace has overcome the problem. Uh, Through Christ's death on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sin, all sin has been dealt with. So the issue isn't what we have done. The issue is turning to you just as Manasseh uh, turned to you. And the result of humbling ourselves under your uh, authority and recognizing your provision of salvation is the same. You provide it freely graciously to us, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted Christ as Savior, never put their faith in him, never uh, trusted that he alone gives them salvation, we pray that they would do so now. That all Scripture says that all you need to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you have everlasting life. Father, we pray for each of us that we might come to understand the principles embedded in this text as they apply to our own thinking, that we not succumb to the thinking of the world, which is just a mere reflection of that of Satan, but that we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and live on the basis of your truth as it is revealed in the Scriptures. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.